Turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter five. We continue our sermon series through the gospel of Matthew. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, words will be on the screen behind me. You can also find in the, uh, our church app a sermon listening guide that has the scripture printed along with an outline and some questions that can help you follow along. Matthew chapter five, verses 27 to 32. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits Adultery. There was a, a new reality dating show that debuted on Netflix back in 2020 called Love is Blind. And the whole goal of this reality TV show was to try to point out the, the difference between emotional connection and physical appearance. And the whole goal was to show that physical appearance uh, is not enough to carry a relationship or to carry a marriage. And so the way it worked is they would take two people, they put them in separate rooms, and they would allow them to get to know each other without seeing each other. And after a while, as they got to know each other, when they got to the point of engagement, then eventually they would be able to see each other for a month before the wedding and, and see each other physically. The, the creator of this show explained why he created it. And the whole point was he was trying to push back on our culture's obsession through social media, through apps, dating apps, this push for physical appearance to be at the front. And he wanted to get rid of that, right? He said this about the show that he created. Everyone wants to be loved for who they are on the inside. It doesn't matter where you live, what you look like, how old you are, what your background is, which class you know, or social structure you feel like you're a part of, everyone wants to be loved for who they are. Now, the good of a show like this is it is, it is correctly diagnosing a problem in our culture, and that is that, that outward appearance is worshiped. Physical appearance doesn't have the power to sustain a relationship or to sustain a marriage. That's the good of a show like this, but then you have to ask the question, does emotional connection have the power to sustain a marriage and sustain a relationship? In other words, is, is blind love the way to truly love someone for who they are? British writer G.K. Chesterton once wrote this, 
Love is not blind. That is the last thing it is. Love is bound. And the more it is bound, the less it is blind. What Chesterton was arguing here is that real love is based on commitment. The only way you can truly love someone for who they are is if you are if you vowed to love them no matter what comes. That that's the only way you can really love someone is if there's commitment that says, I'm going to love this person no matter what, no matter what comes. Faithfulness in marriage is so important. Why? You say, well... It's faithfulness that will allow a marriage to last. That is true. But there's something much deeper, something much greater to the why behind marital faithfulness. Why is faithfulness in marriage so important? First, because it reveals God's generosity. You say, how is that? Well, what Jesus is doing here in the Sermon on the Mount, you'll see he's quoting parts of the Ten Commandments, God's law. And to really understand what Jesus is doing here in the Sermon on the Mount, you have to understand God's law and the purpose of it and the intent of it. God's law at a foundational level is not a mechanism for obedience, it is first and foremost a revelation of God's heart. The Ten Commandments are not first and foremost this mechanism for obedience. It's a revelation of who God is, what he's like, his character. You say, well, how's this play out in this passage about adultery and marriage? Verse 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. This is the seventh commandment. Jesus is doing here in a similar way what he did with the sixth commandment that we saw last week. You shall not murder. The interpretation of the day was murder equals physical murder. Adultery equals physical adultery. But that was very problematic. And Jesus was exposing this because that limited sin to the outward behavior and didn't expose sin at the inward heart level. And so Jesus is completing the interpretation of these commandments that were dangerously incomplete in his day. So he completes this in verse 28. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So the sin of physical adultery begins with a lustful thought in the heart. Jesus immediately now is going to turn to dealing urgently and quickly with this sin. Verse 29, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members 
than that your whole body be thrown into hell. This is a tough verse. Are we to take this literally? I hope not, because there'd be a bunch of missing right eyes right now. Some have taken this literally, even taken it to a further extreme. Origen, who was a Christian scholar and theologian in the first half of the third century, took this more than literally and castrated himself. Now, here's the problem with a literal interpretation. If you gouge out your right eye, you can still see with your left eye. And if you gouge out both eyes, you can still mentally gaze upon someone with a lustful intent. So clearly, this is Jesus is not calling for a literal interpretation here. Then what, what does he mean by it? Jesus is calling for sin to be taken seriously. He's calling for us not to compromise with evil. Well, then you have to ask the question, what sin is he really calling for us to take seriously here? Is this just keep an eye on your eyes? Is this just keep your eyes in check? Or is there something deeper going on here? The answer is yes, there is something deeper at play here. In verse 30 is going to reveal it. Verse 30, and if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Now, why does Jesus introduce the right hand as an image or an illustration here? The eye makes sense, right? We see, we look with our eye. Jesus is introducing the hand here because he is identifying lust and adultery ultimately as theft. That the, the, the right eye and the right hand work together to steal or to take something that doesn't belong to you. And, and this is consistent with the 10th commandment in Exodus 20, 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. And now here it is. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. So adultery is stealing something that doesn't belong to you. It's taking something that's not yours. And the reason Jesus is, is calling for this to be taken so seriously is because, as I said, the Ten Commandments, first and foremost, are a revelation of God's heart. God is a giver, not a taker. God is generous, not stingy. And therefore, he, he longs and calls for his image bearers to be generous and to be givers. And adultery is just the opposite of that. Adultery is taking. It is stealing. Let me try to frame this slightly differently. Adultery or unfaithfulness in marriage is all about consumption. 
Faithfulness in marriage is all about stewardship. Consumption versus stewardship, those are actually two ways of life. What is consumption? Consumption is the world around me exists for my happiness and my pleasure. And my right eye and my right hand will take and grab anything that I can to make me happy, to satisfy me. That's consumption. The world, think of the world as a buffet. And I will just take, take, take to satisfy self. That's a life of consumption. And Jesus is calling out adultery here very seriously because at the heart of adultery is consumption. If lust is the seed of adultery, consumption is the seed of lust. Consumption leads to lust, which leads to adultery. And so Jesus, as he's been doing in the Sermon on the Mount, he's peeling back the onion layers to get at the core of the heart problem when it comes to an outward behavior of sin. Unfaithfulness in marriage is all about consumption. Faithfulness in marriage is all about stewardship. You say, what is stewardship? Stewardship is the care and the management of that which belongs to another. God is a giver. He gives things to you in his goodness to be cared for, to be stewarded by you. Uh, James 1.17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights. Everything you have has been given to you by God to be stewarded. Your job, your house, your car, your education, your clothing, your friends, your kids, and your marriage. Your marriage has been given to you by God, not to be consumed for selfish gain, but to be stewarded for God's glory and the good of others. That that is what marriage is about. Matthew 19, 6. Jesus says, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. What Jesus is saying there is if God has joined you together in marriage, if he has given you marriage, a marriage that ultimately belongs to him, you have no right to rip it apart because it belongs to him. It's to be stewarded for him. And that's why faithfulness in marriage is so important. It reveals to a world that is consumed by consumption. It reveals to a world something very different. And it reveals God's goodness and his generosity. Let me give you an extreme, extreme example of consumption in marriage. Uh, who has been married the most times? And we could look at kind of pop culture and maybe get some answers. Or should I say just popular, well-known people. King Henry VIII was married six times. Film star Elizabeth Taylor was married 
eight times. TV actress Jaja Gabor was married nine times. These aren't even close to the little-known Glenn Scotty Wolf. Their marriages added up don't even get to the number of times he was married. At, he, at age 22, he began marrying and was married 29 times. Now, <laughs> that's a lot. People that have studied his, like psychologically, what's going on there? And as they studied him, they found that every time he got married, he immediately had remorse, kind of like buyer's remorse. He found something out, relationship got hard, going got tough, whatever, and so he, he just moved on, moved on to someone else. What's interesting, I'd say it's interesting, it's terribly sad, but there's, there's a point here is how he died. He had fathered many children and many of his ex-wives were still alive. He died in utter isolation and penniless. And his body went unclaimed in the county morgue for months. That's a, a vivid, extreme, but vivid and accurate picture of the trajectory of a life of consumption. It results in utter isolation. Consumption is a parable of a world without God. Consumption is a parable of a world without God, which the Bible calls hell. When Jesus, after both examples here that he gives of the hand and of the eye, he ends both with the same phrase. He says, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. And what's he talking about there? Well, he's warning us of the ultimate trajectory or the destination of a life of pure consumption. And therefore calling us to go to battle against consumption, especially as it relates to marriage. Why is faithfulness in marriage so important? Because it reveals, faithfulness in marriage reveals God's generosity, reveals his goodness. But not only that, not only that, faithfulness in marriage reveals God's covenant love. Jesus now is going to shift a little bit from talking purely about adultery. He's going to stay on marriage, but now he's going to turn towards divorce and speak on divorce in verse 31. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. This comes straight from Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. The particular expression for indecency here 
It's, it only shows up one other time in the Old Testament, and there it's used for human defecation. Bottom line is we don't know exactly what that phrase for indecency means, but what we do know is that it was an exceptional thing, that this would be something very exceptional. But by the time we get to Jesus' day, it had become not exceptional. In fact, some taught that a husband had a right to divorce his wife for something as trivial as serving him food that had been burnt. In other words, if a wife served her husband spoiled food, he could write her a certificate of divorce. Now, you, everybody's going, that's ridiculous. Are you kidding me? But let me say this. If you're living purely a life of consumption, that's not too far-fetched. And that's the point. That's what Jesus is digging in on here. That if you're living a life of pure consumption, there becomes very trivial reasons of why you would get a divorce, why you would pull out of a relationship, because your needs are not being met. Jesus corrects this casual view of divorce in verse 32. He says, but I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, this is a tough verse. This is a really tough verse. As if the disgrace of a woman who has been unjustly rejected by her husband and been pushed out to be on her own, if that's not enough, now she gets branded an adulteress. What is Jesus talking about here? Well, in the first century in Jewish culture, it was very difficult for a woman to support herself. And so if this husband, for a very trivial reason, gives his wife a certificate of divorce and, and pushes her out to survive, to support herself, she's going to be compelled to get married again. And Jesus says, because the divorce was not biblical, because this was over a trivial reason, now she's exposed to adultery because she has to be remarried to support herself, and so is the man that marries her. The whole point here is Jesus is coming down very hard on a very casual view of divorce. And in this one verse, Jesus returns or is returning us to God's original intent for marriage. Genesis 2.24, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Malachi chapter two, verses 14 and 16. Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit 
and do not be faithless. God hates divorce. The question is why? Why does he hate divorce? Why is Jesus coming down so strongly here on divorce? It's because marriage is a parable of something much greater and much deeper. You say, how do we know that? How do we know that marriage is a parable of something much greater and much deeper than just our own happiness or contentment or satisfaction? Well, later in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus says in Matthew twenty-two thirty, 30, for in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage. That means that marriage between a man and a woman, as we know it today, will not exist in the new heavens and the new earth for eternity. Which means that marriage earthly marriage that we experience today is temporary, serving a greater purpose. That marriage is a parable of something greater. You say, what is it serving? What's that greater purpose? Notice what God calls marriage in Malachi 2, 14, the verse we just read. Though she is your companion, and your wife by covenant. Marriage is a covenant, meaning it's two people that speak vows to one another and enter into a covenantal relationship. Those of you that are married, you've taken vows. Maybe they were something like this or maybe exactly this, for better or for worse, right? For richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health to love and to cherish till death us do part, I pledge you my faithfulness. Those are vows of two people entering into a covenantal relationship. You say, well, what is a, what is a covenant relationship? Tim Keller in his book, The Meaning of Marriage, describes two types of relationships that really cover any relationship that you can have in this life. He kind of boils it down to two. You have consumer relationships and you have covenant relationships. Here's how he describes the two. Throughout history, there have always been consumer relationships. Such a relationship lasts only as long as the vendor meets your needs at an acceptable cost to you. If another vendor delivers better services or the same services at a better cost, you have no obligation to stay in a relationship to the original vendor. In consumer relationships, it could be said that the individual's needs are more important than the relationship. There have always been covenantal relationships. These are relationships that are binding on us. In a covenant, the good of the relationship takes precedence over the immediate needs of the individual. For example, a parent may get little emotionally out of caring for an infant, but there has always been an enormous social stigma attached to any parent 
who gives up their children because rearing them is too hard and unrewarding. For most people, the very idea of that is unthinkable. Why? Society still considers the parent-child relationship to be a covenantal one, not a consumer relationship. Divorce outside of biblical grounds is a parable of a consumer relationship. Marriage and faithfulness in marriage is a parable of God's covenant relationship with us that's founded upon his covenant love. There's a beautiful illustration of God's covenant love over us in Genesis 15. When God makes his covenant with Abraham and all of Abraham's descendants, which Galatians 3 says, are you and me, those in Christ that are sitting here today, So the covenant he made with Abraham extends to us today. And in that covenant, Abraham sacrificed an animal. He cut the animal in half and laid the animal halves beside each other. In a normal covenant-making ceremony in that day, both parties who were coming into a covenantal relationship would walk between the animal pieces, saying that if I don't uphold my end of the covenant, may this happen to me. Now, here's what is profound, heart-transforming, reassuring, the greatest news you and I could ever hear is in Genesis 15. When God made that covenant with Abraham, Abraham did not walk between those animal pieces. God, in the form of a a flaming fire pot, flaming torch, walked between those animal pieces, proclaiming loudly to Abraham and his descendants, you and me, that God would uphold both sides of the covenant. Meaning he'd uphold his end. But when we failed, And we fail over and over to uphold our side of the covenant that God would uphold it for us so that when we fail to uphold it, we don't die, but he dies. And that's what happened 2,000 years ago. Jesus Christ hung on a cross and died. In our place for our breaking of the covenant, so that we could be united into relationship with God, a covenantal relationship where his love never fails, never goes away, never lets go. That's why marriage, faithfulness in marriage, albeit imperfectly, is so important. Is that it reveals this covenant love of God that brings us to the place where God calls us, his church, the bride of Christ. Marriage terminology. God is preparing a bride for his son. And that bride is you, it's the church. He's preparing a bride for his son for a wedding that will take place when Jesus Christ returns. Revelation 21 speaks of this. 
verses two and nine. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb, the lamb Jesus who died to fulfill our side of the covenant. And what that means is that God is committed to purifying you, to sanctifying you, preparing you for the wedding, the day when you will be united to Jesus once and for all for eternity. And here's the good news of that. When you commit adultery, when you look with lustful intent at someone, when you reject your marriage vows and enter into an unbiblical divorce, God points your or directs your gaze to the bridegroom, to his son, Jesus Christ. And as he directs your gaze to the bridegroom, you are reminded of two things. Number one, you are forgiven for breaking the covenant, for committing adultery, for looking with lustful intent at someone, for rejecting your marriage vows, for entering into divorce casually, all the ways within marriage that we sin. He points you, directs you to his son where you're forgiven. And then number two, you're reminded that you are being made into a spotless, pure bride for a faithful bridegroom, Jesus, whose love will never let you go. That's the beauty of what you and I possess. Faithfulness in marriage in a world of consumer relationships reveals, albeit imperfectly, God's covenant love. And not only that, it's that covenant relationship that actually fuels and sustains your love in marriage. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he was imprisoned by the Nazis in prison cell number 92, and he wrote a sermon that, that he never got to preach, but he wrote a wedding sermon for his niece and friend that were getting married. He never got to do it. But this is what he wrote in this sermon. Today, you are young and very much in love and you think that your love will sustain your marriage. It won't. Imagine, well, maybe I've preached that, I don't know, at a wedding ceremony. It's kind of a downer. Two, two, two people glassy-eyed and smiling and like, in love, to say, uh, that's not gonna sustain you. Well, that's what he said, but here it is. But your marriage can sustain your love. And this is Bonhoeffer's way of saying that your covenant relationship, not your consumer relationship, but your covenant relationship will sustain your love in marriage. 
just about 17 years ago, about two months before Kim and I were married. Kim's mother died. She had battled Alzheimer's for many years. And towards the end of her life, the last couple years, it had gotten so bad that she went into total care. Over the years, Kim has shared with me the care and the love that her father gave to his bride in those final years. When her mother was under total care, she got to the point where she couldn't speak. She couldn't walk. And Kim's dad would wake up every morning before he went to work and the caregiver would come in for the day. And he would get her out of bed and he would dress her. Not only would he dress her, he would take the gown and he'd put it under his shirt and warm it up before he put it on her body. He would put her makeup on, including her lipstick. He would do her hair. And to do her hair, he had a picture of her when she was well and her hair was fixed so he would know how to do her hair. Then he would come home after work in the evening and he would feed her. I watched him come home one evening with an Arby's sandwich. And he cut that sandwich up meticulously into tiny, tiny little pieces so she wouldn't choke. And he held her when she took her final breath. It's a beautiful picture of a covenant relationship. Faithfulness in marriage reveals our covenant-keeping God who loves us and who will never let us go. If you're here and you aren't married and you long to be married, know that if or when you get married one day, you are entering into a covenant relationship not a consumer relationship, but into a covenant relationship. If you are currently married and you are secretly in an adulterous relationship or you're headed down the path towards an adulterous relationship, the end of that path is not blissful happiness. It is misery. Turn to Jesus. Turn to the bridegroom. Confess your sin. Find forgiveness. Talk to one of our pastors, our elders. Confess to your spouse and begin the path of healing. And if you're currently married, 
and you're strongly considering divorce because it's just gotten too hard. Happiness isn't on the other side. Only misery. Turn to Jesus. Reach out to a, a pastor, an elder, or maybe a trusted friend. Get the counseling help you need and start rebuilding your marriage. And for those of you who have been married and who are divorced, Jesus, the bridegroom, sympathizes with your pain. And he reminds you of the great marriage that you will enjoy with him for eternity. And that is not just true of those of you who have been divorced. That is true of those of you who are married because this current marriage is temporary. The marriage, the bride of Christ, his church to Jesus, the bridegroom for eternity, that is the marriage that will last for eternity. And it's the one that those of you who are in Christ at some point in your life, maybe early on if you were raised in a Christian home, for some of you who have come to Christ in your adult life, you have said yes to Jesus. And that union, that relationship, that marriage is yours for eternity. But if God gives you the opportunity to be married in this life, go to battle by his grace, through his grace, in his spirit, go to battle for faithfulness because it reveals to a watching world that is consumed by consumer relationships. It reveals to the world that there's a good God, there's a generous God, and there is a covenant-keeping God who loves this world and who loves you. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we are daily, hourly, weekly breakers of your covenant. We sin in thought, word, and deed every day. We are so grateful that the relationship that we have with you is not based on our works, but based on the work of the bridegroom of your son, Jesus Christ. And Father, it's that relationship that brings healing. As we talk about adultery, as we talk about marriage, as we talk about divorce, this lands heavy on our hearts. Every one of us has experienced the sin of unfaithfulness in marriage, even outside of marriage. And we need to be assured of your forgiveness. And we need to be reminded that you are preparing us for the bridegroom, Jesus, and that you promise to present us as spotless and as pure. The work you've begun in us, you will carry to completion. And as sinners that are often filled with guilt and shame, we need to hear that, Father. 
Thank you for delivering that word to our desperate hearts. Father, for the marriages represented in this room, for those that maybe are thinking about divorce, would you by your Holy Spirit turn them to Jesus that they would get help and begin rebuilding? Father, for those that have been hurt, pained by adultery, would you bring forgiveness? And would you bring healing? Father, we all collectively, wherever we're at in our season of life as it relates to marriage, we all collectively lift our eyes and we look to you, our covenant-keeping God. We look to your son, Jesus, the perfect bridegroom, and we look to your Holy Spirit that's transforming us. And we ask now as we respond in singing that we would sing not out of guilt and shame, but with joy of having been redeemed. And that we would sing of your goodness and that we would sing of your love over us. We pray this all in Christ's name, amen.